There are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Thank you, Anne, and welcome to It's All About Skills. We have a terrific guest today, one who can shed light and some clarity on a comment, which many of you will remember, made by Benjamin Franklin on the last day of the Constitutional Convention in 1787. A lady asked Dr. Franklin, well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? Franklin replied, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Well, our, our guest today is Dr. Ethan Hollander, and he is Associate Professor of Political Science at Wabash College and knows a lot about our constitutional republic. In both his teaching and scholarly research, he bridges academic disciplines in an effort to better understand the world in which we live, its past and its future. His teaching portfolio includes such varied courses as nationalism and ethnic conflict, European politics, politics of the Middle East, and research methods and statistics. He is currently writing a book on the Holocaust, Hegemony and the Holocaust, State Power and Jewish Survival in Occupied Europe. Now, Dr. Hollander has an in-depth knowledge of various types of government and focuses on topics which should, which should concern us all about the survival of our constitutional republic. So welcome, Professor Hollander, to It's All About Skills. Thank you. It's great to be here. Delightful to have you here. To start out with, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and what prompted you to choose a career in political science. Um, well, you know, I, I started uh, college as, an, as a physics major. <laughs> so I was, I was on the other side of the spectrum initially. Um, still really enjoy physics. Uh, uh, it's kind of my hobby is to, to, to learn about it. Um, but I, I, you know, early on in college took an economics class and was fascinated to realize that there was a scientific approach to the study of human society. I, I was sort of, uh, you know, I, I, what I liked about physics was that you could you know, uh, there was an experimental method and you could graph things to really get a, a general view of how things work. Uh, but when, then I, when I took economics and realized, well, gee, you could, you could take that approach to studying human behavior, that was just fascinating to me. So I, I ran with it. Well, you started out in science. I mean, is, is political science a science? <laughs> that, that's a good question. Um, I think um, if you ask me, is political science a science in the way that physics or chemistry was or something like that, I, I would say no. I, I think uh, what we study in political science is just too complex. The systems are too big. Uh, measurement is too imprecise that no, it's not, it's not, you, you can't set up controlled experiments in political science the way you can in physics. So, so no, I wouldn't say it's a science like that. Um, but you know, 
everybody would say that that meteorology is a science. People would say that ecology is a science, that medicine is a science. And these things also study really complex systems that are hard to pin down where precise measurement is basically impossible and, and where, um, you know, uh, where, where, where you can't really set up a, a precisely controlled experiment. And yet you still can establish patterns about how things work. Uh, you, can, you can use an experimental method where you test your predictions about what's gonna happen. Um, and I think we can do that in science as well with, with the same caveats that one would attach to meteorology. Um, it's an imprecise science in some ways. Our, our error bars in a statistical sense, our confidence is, is, is a lot less than it might be in, in astronomy or physics or something like that. But, but I think it's still an, an experimental way to uh, make observations and test our conclusions uh, that is in the end scientific in that sense. Well, that uh, I can see the parallels. And uh, you know, you, you recently created a political science course for the Wondrium channel. Now that was formerly the great courses. And the title of the course is Democracy and its alternatives. So, uh, Dr. Hollander, tell us a little bit about that course. Well, it started as just a course on comparative government. How how is it that government works in the United States and and around the world? Uh, which is a course I've taught at Wabash dozens of times, right? Uh, and I taught it at UC San Diego before I came here. Uh, you know, Intro to Comparative Politics is a, a just a classic quintessential political science course. Um, but in the course of, of doing it for the great courses, um, it morphed into something bigger. Um, I just couldn't escape the question of if I'm studying democracy and democracies around the world and how they differ and alternatives to democracy, dictatorship, and how that's emerged as a, a challenger to democracy in the world today, I couldn't, I couldn't avoid the question of uh, is democracy currently in crisis? Why is it currently in crisis and can it survive? And so what started as a class on just comparative government, which in fact, that was the working title for the longest time, uh, became a class on, on democracy and its alternatives. And, and the first lecture is titled, Is Democracy Built to Last? Yeah, well, let's focus on democracy a little bit because it certainly is a timely topic. Just what is democracy, and how do you relate democracy to the government of the United States? So I, I think in a classic sense, the, the way I teach it, the way I think most political scientists would teach it, uh, democracy is, is the form of government that relies on, on two or three characteristics. And I mean that literally, it's two or three. Um, uh, and those are representation, participation, and some would say liberal rights. Um, so democracy involves representation, right? Uh, individuals' voices are represented um, in, in terms of what the, the public decisions are gonna be. Um, that could be direct or indirect. We either participate, uh, you know, and that's where the second characteristic comes in, participation, right? We vote um, either directly, say in ancient Athens where people would show up and vote on public policy, or we vote for representatives who then make those decisions on our, on our behalf. So, so representation and participation are, are clearly 
undeniably uh, two characteristics which have to be there for, for us to call something a democracy. It's the third characteristic where, where a little bit more debate enters in, and that is liberal rights, uh, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, freedom of uh, religious toleration, um, uh, equal treatment under the law, things like that. Um, and the reason why I put a maybe there is because what do you do if the majority wants to oppress the minority? Well, there you have a situation where the majority is represented, uh, their view, which, which you and I and many of us you know, may think is a really bad view, but their view is represented. They've participated, let's say by their vote to make that the public policy or to make that the public decision. But the content of that decision, that, that decision is to oppress this group of people. Uh, because of their religious view, because of their skin color, because they wear funny hats, like wh whatever the reason is, um, uh, can you still call that a democracy? And, and at least, can you call it a democracy in any way that the word still has meaning? Um, so if you have representation and you have participation, but the majority, even an overwhelming majority, then decides that some subset of society doesn't have this right, the right to property, the right to life, the right to liberty, um, would we still call that a democracy? And so the question there is, are liberal rights in that sense, lowercase l liberal, I'm not talking about leftist versus right wing people or something like that, but lowercase l rights, liberal rights. Um, if a country doesn't have those, but its government is, is decided by representation and participation by, by ordinary citizens, would we still call that a democracy? Most of us would say no, uh, but at some point democracy kind of loses its meaning if there are whole groups of people in society that don't have any meaningful rights. Wow, uh, well, you know, back in uh, turning the clock back to, in the 1780s, when uh, the founding party- get back a lot. Yeah, <laughs> got together and, uh, and uh, we're trying to figure out what to do with the Articles of Confederation, they came up with a whole new uh, constitution of the United States. So tell us a little bit about what they had in mind. And you can relate this also to in the original constitution that they ratified. Um, I, as I recall, there weren't any liberal rights articulated. They came a little bit later, didn't they? I mean, in the amendments or something. But tell us a little bit about what the, the uh, founding fathers had in mind when they created the government and the constitution. Yeah, I, I mean, you're right. The, the Bill of Rights came a couple years later after the constitution was first uh, uh, signed. Um, and I don't, I don't know the history that well, but, but um, whatever the case, some people I think thought that the Bill of Rights would be unnecessary because the implication was that the constitution is spelling out all the things that government can do and so it was a given that government can't restrict your right to free speech because it was never given that, that, that ability in the first place. So I, I think to a lot of the founding fathers, the Bill of Rights was redundant. Um, it was spelling out things that you have the right to do or things that the government can't restrict your right to do. But in fact, given that the constitution was initially supposed to be, here's the things that government can do, 
uh, anything that wasn't mentioned there was supposed to be a right that you had anyway. Um, so it was, it was, I think, clearly redundant. The question was, was it a necessary redundancy? And I think a lot of people at the time clearly said yes. And so they added the Bill of Rights, those 10 original uh, additional rights. Um, what did the founding fathers have in mind? Uh, you know, I think when we learn the story in grade school, uh, it's not incorrect. They had in mind a separation from British tyranny. Um, but I think that's not incorrect, but it's a smaller part of the story than, than their even bigger concern, which, I, which is, I think, a, a protection against tyranny of the majority. The, uh, you know, that kind of thing I was just talking about, where what do you do when a majority wants to deprive a minority of some kind of fundamental right, a property right, a, a, the right to life, right? Um, and I think when they wrote the constitution in this very conservative way, and now it's a lowercase c conservative, right? Mm -hmm. Giving government very few powers, um, making it very hard for government to do really anything. Um, I think that's what they had in mind. I mean, certainly they had in mind putting in checks and balances so that a, a British style monarchy uh, couldn't just rule over us. Um, but I think even more what they had in mind was, was making sure that, that one group of people couldn't oppress another group of people using the democratic system to do so. Uh, you know, making it, make it so the government was so purposely inefficient that even if there was a majority that wanted to deprive a minority of its rights, it wouldn't be able to. So government being inefficient in a sense gives some sense of stability uh, to the whole system, even though it can provide great frustration. That's correct. Uh, the gridlock that we see today in, in a way was part of their plan. Now, I'm not gonna say that they they envisioned, and certainly they didn't want it to, to, to be this successful, <laughs> um, you know, uh, but I think some kind of planned inefficiency was part of the system. I mean, let, let's face it, it would be very efficient if people elected a government by a majority vote, simple majority vote, uh, that government then could do whatever it wants. And why not? They got a majority, right? Um, that would be fully democratic. But, you know, it would leave us very vulnerable to that kind of situation where, you know, 80% of the people want to deprive 20% of the people of their property or something like that. Um, and so since the founders clearly saw that, that third characteristic of, of democracy as being very important, the protection of, of individual rights, even if the majority doesn't want those individuals to have those rights, uh, it, it was because they were so concerned with that that they they set up these things that we've heard of the separation of power powers the the balance of powers um, those things do make government inefficient but but I think their plan was that if a government I, I mean come on Madison says it almost literally like this I don't have the quote in front of me but um, oh how does he say it. A gov uh, you know, if you have the Constitution set up in this way, such that it's very difficult for the government to make any decisions, then you almost can't have public policy that isn't based on some very wide 
amount of support. The difference between what I just said and what Madison said is that he said it eloquently. Well, he certainly knew what he was doing and uh, designed something that seems to work. But you know what they came up with isn't exactly a democracy, is what you're saying. You know, it's a, a constitutional republic. So, well, you know, what is a constitutional republic? Just what is that? Uh, so um, it's, a, it's a democracy, depending on how you define it. It's a representative democracy. So it's either not a direct democracy, but it's a kind of democracy where we... Um, you know, you and I as ordinary citizens don't, don't have a lot of direct say in what our laws will be, but we do have a lot of direct say through our vote in who our leaders will be, and they then vote on what the public policy will be. <clears throat> so that's the, the representative part of democracy. And so when we call it a constitutional republic, that, that's what the word republic is doing there. Uh, when we call our democracy constitutional, uh, what we mean is that there are rules that even the government has to follow. Um, what, of the, what a constitution really is, if you think about the word, is that it's that set of rules that constitute the government. They're the rules that tell us how government is going to be set up. Um, they, you know, a constitution defines what the lawmaking process will be. So it says we're going to elect our representatives in these particular ways, and they're going to go about making rules in this particular way. And say in the United States, you have to get the approval of the, the, the House of Representatives and then the Senate, but even the president can, can veto it and so on. A constitution constitutes the government. It, it, it lays out how government is supposed to operate and what government is supposed to do. And in the process, it lays out the limits of what government can do. Um, and so when, you, when we call the United States a constitutional republic, well, it's a republic, it's a representative democracy, and it's constitutional. That is to say, there are limits on what the government itself can do. There, there are laws that the government itself has to follow. So the founding fathers really were brilliant in what they set up and that they allowed people to participate as part of a democratic system, but they put breaks and things to slow it down a little bit so the majority couldn't, uh, couldn't really take over. And it, so therefore, it's not a pure democracy. And one of, one of my favorite historical figures uh, had something to, who used to have something to say about everything. Winston Churchill is known to once said, uh, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been tried. <laughs> what do you think he meant by that? <laughs> well, I, I, I think he meant just that, that, that democracy has some really tremendous flaws that make it a pretty bad form of government. But given that all forms of government are kind of bad and have lots of weaknesses attached to them, uh, maybe the weaknesses of democracy are the uh, very bad but least concerning weaknesses of all the weaknesses that we can think about when thinking of governments. Um, the, the real question is, is it, is it true? <laughs> uh, is democracy really the worst form of government other than all the others? Is it the best form of government? Um, you know, and, and I like it, you know, that's, that's my view. Um, but, you know, before when, when I said that, that political science is a science, uh, another way in which it's a science is that my 
job as a political scientist is to explain how the system works, uh, not my particular preferences about it. And that even goes as so far as to say, my preference for democracy is not necessarily what I'm teaching. Um, I'm teaching the pros and cons of the system as it exists. And it's up to students uh, or listeners of, of Wondrium uh, to decide what they think about it. Um, but I think one vulnerability about democracy is that it's only as good as the people who make it. Yeah. Um, you know, in the end, if, if people elect fools to lead, we're gonna have fools to lead and, and not, not despite our, our best efforts, but because of them. Um, you know, there's, there's always this little irony um, in, in the way people talk about the radicalism of government today. You know, we, we talk about, um, oh, you know, this representative from so-and-so is a, is a racist and a radical and a real terrible person and a conspiracy theorist. And, and you know, that's true of, of, of some of our representatives and that's really bad, but it's not actually a failure of democracy. Um, it, it might be a moral failure, but, but, but hear me out here, right? We know it's a sad fact of, of, of life that there are racists and radicals out there in society. And so isn't it only to be expected that if democracy works, those people who also vote would have people to represent their, in my view, very wrong views. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the fact that we have I don't want to name names here, but you could you could do a quick Google search and find them, right? Some you know fanatic conspiracy theorist, racist from some you know uh, uh, congressional district, let's just say in 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 rural Georgia. Um, you know that person might be a racist, um, but I don't think that person's election indicates a failure of democracy. It, it, in fact, indicates a failure of society and a success of democracy. Because one thing about democracy is that everybody gets a vote, everybody gets a voice, even uh, people who I think are really wrong. Well, and isn't it, isn't it wonderful that since we have the right to free speech, that it's important to give people with radical and very negative views the right to speak out, so we know what they're thinking, so we know that's what right. they're saying. I mean, that's a strength, you know. And you say, you say, uh, Dr. Hollander, that democracy is only as good as the people who make it. So there must be some necessary ingredients in terms of people to make a uh, democracy or, or or a constitutional republic work. What are some of those things? Um, so, you know, I think a really big one, and I know that this is something you, you talk about uh, with other guests on this podcast, is, is education, right? You need an educated electorate. Again, we can, we can blame the electorate for, you know, we, we, can, we can blame our politicians for being liars, but if they get reelected, then clearly this is something the public is okay with. <laughs> so do you blame the politicians for being liars? Or should you blame the public for reelecting people who are liars? <laughs> um, and the same goes, you know, if our representatives are uneducated or if they act like they're uneducated or if they don't value the constitution. Um, you know, 
Thomas Jefferson said, and, and, and I know this is a quote you like, that, that a society can't be ignorant and free at the same time. Uh, that freedom, and, and as we envision it, can't exist in, in a society where people are ignorant. Well, he's right. Um, and, and, you know, in a society where, where I think education is largely failing, um, particularly civics education, understanding of how government operates and, and that sort of thing, uh, it's no wonder that our liberties are at risk. Um, so, so I think education is a, a really important element of, of a successful constitutional republic. Um, I think there are other things too, various norms, um, which are hard to talk about, hard to quantify, hard to kind of put your fingers on, but, but norms about how we operate. Um, and I think if those aren't there, um, then the system is, is at risk. And how do they get there? Well, they get there through education. So it, it ties together with that. But you know, there, there are certain um, norms where you're supposed to uh, you know, respect the results of an election. <laughs> um, you know, if that norm dies, we're screwed, right? <laughs> Democracy is, 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 is definitely in trouble. Um, and you know, I think that's a problem. Like what we need is a norm where we support the system even if we don't like the results. And you know, I don't want to beat up on one side disproportionately. Well, I might want to beat up on one <laughs> side disproportionately, but I, I, I don't want to get into that. I see both sides doing this. Um, you know, on the one hand, you have uh, Trump's, uh, is it right to say slowness, it, slowness in acknowledging the election results? Slow indicates that he eventually got there, and I don't think he has. Uh, so clearly, that's, that's one example. But you hear people uh, on the left who, who criticize the filibuster, um, right? Uh, you, you hear people on the left who criticize the electoral college because those are institutions that aren't going their way now, right? The electoral college is the reason Trump won in the first place in 2016 because he did lose the popular vote, but he did win the electoral vote and that's what matters. Um, what I find really rare in society now, and, and I think troublingly rare, is the way in which people decide whether they like the system or not based on whether they like the results that it's giving them. So do I like the electoral college? Uh, well, I don't know. Is it electing the kind of candidates who I like? <laughs> um, and I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think we should be able to evaluate the system uh, as a good or bad system, a system that was put in place for good reasons or bad reasons, and, and whether those reasons still apply, regardless of, of whether we like how it's going to turn out for us. I, you know, I read an essay that, that you wrote <laughs> um, uh, on your blog about um, how you are pro-choice, but you thought that, that it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but you thought uh, that the law was on the side of the Supreme Court when they overturned Roe v. Wade. Um, uh, I, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I even, I take that as true. And in fact, probably aligns with my views as well. Um, but what I find troubling in our society is that there's so few people uh, with that kind of combination of views. Like, could it be correct 
that we should have a right to choose for, for, for people who needed abortion, but that the law as it currently stands doesn't give us that. To me, that's all the more impetus to go, go write a good law yeah. that gives us that right explicitly. Um, but you don't see people who say that. Uh, I'll give you an example on the other side. I've never met a leftist who thinks that Trump's uh, loss wasn't rigged, right? So you have people on the right who say, oh, Trump lost, but, but it was lit, rigged. You know, it was an unfair election. And I happen to believe that the election was fair and that he lost, so I'm part of this. But wouldn't it be interesting if there were some people who said, well, I really wanted Trump to win, but huh, just turns out he didn't. Oh, well, you don't get your way all the time. And if there were some people on the other side who said, you know, the election was rigged. Oh boy, I'm glad he didn't win, but, but there was some unfairness. Now it's hard to do it in that case because the facts just don't align with Trump having won the election and having had the election stolen. Um, but one thing that in a weird way, don't, don't take this too literally, but one thing that's a little bit troubling to me is that it's, it's only people who wanted Trump to have won who think that he legitimately won and that the election was stolen from him. And it's only people who wanted Trump to lose who think the election was fair, <laughs> um, which means that people seem to be looking at the result and then evaluating the system based on whether it gave them the result they wanted instead of evaluating the system and then taking the results as they are. Well, that certainly gets down to one thing you've just pointed out a few minutes ago about education. And I certainly agree with you that uh, one of the fundamental things or, or top or courses and so forth that should be taught, I mean, starting in middle school is civics and government so that people understand the kind of government that we have. And, you know, getting back to Thomas Jefferson, he also said uh, in a, when he wrote uh, General Washington a letter back in uh, in 1786, he says, it is an axiom in my mind that our liberty can never be safe but in the hands of the people themselves, and that too, with the people with a certain degree of instruction. I just love the way he puts what he puts his words together and so forth. But then, you know, this is a this is a podcast about critical skills. And, you know, part that's a little bit different than courses in education. Uh, and you, you're familiar with some of the critical skills that I write about in the, and what this blog is about. How do they fit into making a constitutional republic or a democracy work? Um, well, you know, I, I know that, that say one of the skills you talk about is say a communication skill, right? Our leaders have to be able to effectively communicate to us what they're doing and why. Uh, the media has to be able to communicate to us what's going on. Um, and so clearly democracy isn't gonna work very well if voters uh, can't get the information. There's another critical skill that I know you talk about a lot. If voters can't get the right information, um, if the information is there, but it is communicated properly, um, if, uh, it, the information is there and it is communicated properly, but people can't analyze it <laughs> uh, worth a darn. Um, you know, if you can't process that information or draw logical conclusions, that's gonna be a real problem. 
Um, you know, and, and oftentimes that means you're gonna have to use technology, uh, whether it's the technology of the printing press when they first, you know, invented that or, or you know, Facebook and Twitter and, and you know, your little uh, dinkly do in your pocket, the, the cell phone, right? Um, I call it a dinkly do to my students as a, I figure if I diminish it, uh, they're less likely to use it in class. <laughs> I can certainly, you know, you talk about communications and so forth. I can certainly see the contrast having gone through every one of the Federalist Papers uh, to see the difference between how Madison Jay and Hamilton communicated the, uh, the, the, the desire to have the Constitution ratified by writing eloquent essays compared to these days, you get a two sentence thing on Twitter. I mean, what a contrast, but the effect of communication can be just as powerful. And it's amazing. So, you know, the, uh, what, what are, do, do these things, what are some of the vulnerabilities of, of uh, democracies? Uh, uh, we, we talked a little bit about that. Uh, can, can you go into that a little bit more? Sure thing. You know, I think one of the vulner vulnerabilities is, is that, you know, you talk about these critical skills that are that that are necessary to make democracy work. Well, one of them is that uh, some of those skills can be used for good or for ill. Yeah, for sure. Right? Um, you know, you, you uh, have a blog entry on, on fascism and how fascism used those skills. And it did. Right. And, the fascism, did, it, and it did it legally. That's right. And they were very effective at, at I mean, my, my, uh, I have a book out on, on Nazi Germany, right? They were very effective communicators and very good users of technology and managers of information. Uh, and the information wasn't always true, but they were managers of that information. Um, so I think one of the vulnerabilities is that any of these skills uh, the skills are important, they're crucial, right? But they're also value neutral. Yes. And they can be used um, uh, for good or for ill. You know, I, I think it's Plato who says that um, locksmiths make the best thieves, <laughs> right? You see it, right? <laughs> you know, The skill that goes into letting you into your car when you accidentally lock your keys inside is the same skill or at least very similar to the skill it takes to steal that car in the first place. And so, um, you know, that unfortunately is the case with a lot of these critical skills um, is that sometimes they're used by not locksmiths, but by thieves. Um, so, so I think that's a, a vulnerability of democracy. And I think that fits in with, with the bigger one, which is the one we've just discussed, which is that democracy is really only as good as, as the voters who make it up or the decision makers who make it up. And their ability to think critically and process information that's true. You know, right. you, you mentioned the, uh, you know, some of the critical skills being used for ill and historically uh, with uh, fascism in, in Italy and Nazism in Germany. But what are some of the more contemporary you know, examples of democracies that uh, failed and, and why did they fail? So, you know, I, I think at some level, the, the core failure. That, that troubles democracies is when people associate democracy itself with the problems that society is having. Um, so, you know, we've seen democratic decay all over the world uh, lately. I mean, in some, some sense, you see people talk about it uh, 
in the United States, in, in, in Europe, with the rise of populism, uh, populism of the left and the right. Um, you know, it seems to be more successful on the right, um, you know, with the Trumps and the, the Marine Le Pens of the world and, and so on. But you see it on the left too, um, say in Spain um, uh, or wherever. And you've seen democratic systems that fail. So, so I was just talking about the United States, Germany, France. Democracy is still alive in these places, but, it, but you're seeing a rise of anti-democratic movements. Uh, but there are countries where those movements have become the government. Uh, Hungary, Turkey, the Philippines, Brazil, um, all of these places were places that in the you know, very recent past were maybe new, maybe not 100% stable, but pretty stable democracies, um, or at least developing democracies. And these are all places where uh, you know, anti-democratic populist strongmen, uh, and they, they have always been men lately, I, I guess. I, I can't think of a, a strong woman, but it's probably just a matter of time. Um, uh, you know, but, but these, these anti-democratic strongmen have won elections. Um, and I think they win elections with the rhetoric of democracy. I mean, all these people would say that they're democratic leaders. I think Orban thinks he's the, the pinnacle of democracy. Um, but I think in, in the end, he, how did he come to power? Well, fairly uh, through elections, because you know, in the recent past, Hungary is only as good as its electorate, and so they get Orban. Uh, Turkey is only as good as, as its electorate, and so they got uh, Erdogan, and so on and so forth. Now, why did it happen in these countries? Uh, you know, I think it's kind of an individual story for each country. Um, you know, I think in Hungary, uh, you had a growing income and wealth inequality. Um, you had uh, massive immigration, which was uh, terribly unpopular and, and, and maybe the government wasn't doing, I, don't, I could say it wasn't doing enough or the right thing to, to manage it, but certainly wasn't doing enough in the views of its citizenry. And so radical xenophobic, uh, movements started to gain more support. Um, you know, in Turkey, the, the, the democratic government was probably also corrupt. Um, well, people don't like corruption and, and guess what? I'm with them. Uh, but if that's the case, you might elect a government that's maybe less corrupt, even if it's also less democratic. Um, I know that the Philippines, I don't know an, a lot about the Philippines in particular, but you know, there were massive drug problems in the country. Um, and one thing that Duterte did there is to, to, to do these, you know, brutal and massive crackdowns on even, you know, street corner drug dealers. Well, that's a very, you know, heavy handed law and order approach, but people clamored for that. Um, not everybody for sure, but enough people clamored for it that somebody like Duterte could get elected on a message that he's going to clean that up. Um, and so, you know, and also I think on a message that democracy wasn't up to the challenge of cleaning up those problems. Um, you, you know, we, we talked about uh, uh, immigration as being a problem in Hungary or, or migration, right? There's a migration crisis, there was a financial crisis. And, and 
that put the country in in sort of bad shape. And if you think that that bad shape isn't just the migration crisis, isn't just the financial crisis, but democracy's gridlock and dysfunction and inability to, to deal with those crises, well then you might not value democracy so much. And you might turn a blind eye to a leader who's ready to uh, weaken democracy. Again, they never admit that that's what they're doing, but, but ready to weaken some of these democratic norms or just ignore some of these democratic norms in order to address these uh, more pressing problems. Well, well, you know that you mentioned and we've talked a little bit about some of the fundamental uh, fragilities of democracy being uh, the lack of an educated voters uh, population or populations of voters that have not been educated as the kind of how our government works or don't have the critical skills necessary to evaluate the information they're receiving and drawing conclusions from that. They're not doing critical thought. Now, now, now there, there are other kinds of uh, threats to our constitutional republic. And you know, just how fragile is, uh, is this form of government that we have um, to other kinds of uh, chicanery or whatever you might call it, or procedural kinds of things that might be taking place? Uh, I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Well, there is, we, we know that they, there's a, a, a vulnerability of democracy by not having an educated population. They want, they're not able to think or make decisions based on fact, and they're making it on rumor or even lies. But there are other things that uh, demonstrate how fragile our democratic form of government is, things that people can do uh, with the system. What are some of those things? So yeah, and, and I, I, I think there are those things. And, and I think that maybe is, is a sort of deeper level of, of fragility that democracy is facing. This idea that people are starting to, I, I think, tinker with the system itself um, instead of just trying to work within the system to change the rules that we have. Um, you see that in sort of, um, uh, and again, you see it on the left and the right. Um, you, you, you saw that in, um, I can never remember his name, the Senate, uh, uh, the Republican leader in the Senate. Um, Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, thank you. Uh, you know, you saw that with, uh, you know, he wasn't gonna uh, allow a Supreme Court nomination to go through when Obama made the nomination yeah. because, you know, it was a year away from the next election. So we, we couldn't possibly nominate people to the Supreme Court uh, uh, when there's only a year left until the next election. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies two weeks shy of election. And suddenly now we have to get a new representative in right away. Um, that kind of uh, court packing, right? Yeah. Okay, so what, what do you see as the greatest threat uh, to our constitutional republic, aside from the fact that we needed an educated uh, population and uh, and you know strong abilities to understand truth from fiction and critical, we need critical thinking. What are some of the other things that makes our 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 our, our democratic form of government fragile? 
that's a great question. You know, I, I you always see people blame it on cell phones and, and Facebook and modern media technology, but I think there are some deeper fragilities that I wish we, we paid more attention to. Uh, one is uh, what I guess I might call systemic tinkering, uh, tinkering with the system itself, uh, rather than trying to work within the system to get the results we want. Uh, I think you saw that with uh, Mitch McConnell's court packing, right? <laughs> so Obama wants to make an appointment to the Supreme Court because uh, uh, I guess, uh, who was it, uh, Scalia dies. But, oh no, we can't do that because we're a year away from the next presidential election and we just can't make an appointment to the Supreme Court when there's only a year away, you know, until the next election. So we don't even get a hearing uh, for Obama's nominee and then two weeks shy of the election, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies and oh, we gotta get our nominee right in, right? Um, uh, you know, instead of just picking a judge who's a reasonable person and nonpartisan and who's gonna read the law and decide whether the law applies in this way or that way, here you've got a guy who's deciding based on the results he wants, what the system should be. <laughs> whether you should be allowed to uh, appoint a Supreme Court nominee within a year of the next election or not. That's not a rule either way. It's a rule he made up to get the results he wanted. Uh, and I think that's a problem. Um, but you see it on the left as well. I don't, again, I don't wanna beat up, uh, you know, unfairly on any one side. Uh, you see people on the, on the left now complaining about the filibuster. Um, and you know, complaining about the electoral college. And I see why they complain because those institutions are, are hindering what is now a democratic majority from getting its way. Uh, Democrats have a, albeit very narrow, but a majority in the Senate, but they can't just get their way in the Senate because you need 60% of the votes in the Senate effectively to get anything done. So they now don't like the filibuster. I don't know, you ask me, the filibuster in and of itself as a systemic thing isn't really bad. You know, I may not like what it's doing to us now, but the idea that to get a decision, you need more than just a bare 50% majority, but 60%, I don't know, that, that says a lot. There's a lot of value to political systems that require super majorities to get things done. There's a risk because uh, you more often have gridlock and dysfunction. It's harder to get things done. But you know, if, if we were with a group of friends, if it was you and me and one other person and we were gonna order a pizza together and that person was a vegetarian and we weren't, it would be really sort of mean of us to use our vote and decide to get a meat pizza. So with three people, you wouldn't just vote and say the majority should get its way. You'd say, we gotta have some kind of compromise here where even the vegetarian has some say in the ultimate decision because that's what keeps that person working within the system and still being our friend. Um, that's a simple analogy, but the idea is that, you know, the, 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 the the idea that you need a 60% vote in the Senate to get something done does make decisions harder to make, but they also make it so that any decision that is made doesn't 
majorly disadvantage 49% of the people. Yes. Um, and it partially disadvantaged by any uh, Senate decision. And I think that's a good thing, even if it doesn't happen to be working for me right now. And it's a good thing, maybe, even though it's got to be weighed against another bad, which is the gridlock and dysfunction that it, that it causes. Well, you know, there are some other tricks that, are, that, are, that seem to be prevalent these days, and that's the ability of a state legislature being able to draw congressional dis districts. And these, uh, these districts are drawn up so that essentially a party that draws up the districts can't lose. That's right. What's that called? What's that? So, so that's gerrymandering. Um, and yeah, it's the idea that you draw up legislative districts in such a way uh, to, to get some kind of result that you want. And the result of gerrymandering nationwide, uh, again, this too has been done by leftist legislatures and rightist legislatures, uh, maybe just Democratic and Republican legislatures. But the result is that we have very few actually competitive congressional elections anymore. Um, you know, it's enough that some election in some district out in Wyoming is going to make national news. And uh, maybe it's doing that because it's one of the, the, the handful of elections where the result is actually not a foregone conclusion. But in most of these districts, they're drawn in such a way that you know, if a district is 70% Republican or 70% Democrat, well, there's not going to be any serious competition from the other side. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about how our society is so polarized. Uh, yeah. There's no moderates anymore. There's no middle. And, um, you know, if only more people in society were moderates, they would elect leaders who are more moderate. Um, I think that's true. Uh, but I think the, the causal arrow also goes the other way. What we have now is a system that rewards radicals. Um, if you're not a, a fully dyed-in-the-wool Republican and you live in a district that's gerrymandered to be 70% Republican, you're not going to win. Um, and so, you know, what we get, and, and the same goes on the left, the exact mirror image of that, right? So, you know, what we have is a system that rewards politicians for staking out uh, more polarizing uh, positions and, and, and policies rather than one that rewards moderation. If you live in a district that's exactly 50-50, you know, or close to exactly 50-50, who do you have to win over? Not your base, not the other side's base, it's those moderates. They're going to be the kingmaker in that situation. Um, but we have very few districts because of gerrymandering. We have very few districts where the result is decided by a few election points one way or another. Um, another problem, of course, is voter turnout is so low that who is it that shows up? Oh, well, it's the radicals on both sides. Yeah. <laughs> uh, moderates just stay home. So no wonder our politicians are constantly appealing to their base it's their base who's gonna come show up on election day, come hell or high water. It's the moderates who are gonna show up if it doesn't rain, <laughs> right? Or you know, if there isn't a good football game on that day or something like that. 
Well, you know, uh, Professor Hollander, we could go on all day talking about other issues like the mistrust of authority that we're seeing now, the police funding, the mistrust of the FBI, and wealth inequality. We could be talking about that. We could be talking about that for the next hour and uh, all sorts of things. So what can be people do these days to try to stem the tide or drift from our constitutional republic that's worked so well for the last 200 and some years and prevent a drift to an autocracy or dictatorship? What, what are some of the things that we could do? You know, I, I think we could go a long way if we didn't see problems as either this is the problem or that is the problem and recognize that there's, uh, in a lot of cases, a little bit of both. Um, uh, why is there increasing uh, wealth inequality in our society? Well, on the right, you hear it's because we have cheap labor that's coming in here from overseas and these people will work illegally for nothing. And, and oh, it's because these companies are outsourcing, which is why you've seen this revival of, of protectionist anti-free trade policies on the right. You know, so why is, is income uh, more equal now than ever or in such a long time? Oh, it's because of, you know, these, these immigrants who keep coming in and because of uh, a, a lack of, uh, protectionist trade policies. And then what you hear on the left is, no, it's not that at all. It's not migration at all that's the reason for income inequality. It's uh, uh, automation. It's the fact that, that um, you know, machines are now making things that people used to make and so there's less demand for workers. You know, in my view, it's not, the, who's right in that? They both are, right? It doesn't take a very sophisticated economic viewpoint to know that if you have more labor entering a society, particularly unskilled labor, the price of labor is going to go down. That's not advanced economics. That's the first page of your economics textbook. Um, but, you know, uh, oh, no, it's, it's it, on, on the right, it's, it's, you know, it's these immigrants are coming in and stealing our jobs. And on the left, it's, oh, that's not part of the problem at all. <laughs> um, well, both those people are wrong. It's part of the problem, but it's part of the problem. Uh, and then, you know, on the, on the left, you get its automation. That's the reason why there isn't the same demand for unskilled labor that there used to be and why, why wages are stagnating. Um, it, it's all automation, and that's wrong. It's partly automation. Uh, but it's not all automation. And, and I think in our society, there's just this kind of way of seeing, is, is, it this pro is this the fault or is this the fault? Instead of saying, how much is it this versus that, that's at fault. And, and so at some level, it, it also relates to sort of taking the other side seriously. I, 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 you know, everybody thinks that the political opposite is stupid. Um, uh, you know, and unfortunately, they're both right right now. Um, uh, you know, that, that if you realize that there are very good non-racist reasons for wanting to control immigration, um, if you realize that there are very good not America-hating reasons to uh, want jobs to stay in the United States, 
you know, the, the, the left is going to blame anybody on the right for being racist uh, as soon as they have a policy they don't like, especially if it deals with like immigration or something like that. The right is going to immediately accuse the left of being uh, uh, hating America. <laughs> right. Um, uh, as soon as they have a policy that they don't like. Well, you know, that's wrong on both sides <laughs> often. You know, or to the extent that it's right on both sides, it's a it's a small fringe element on both sides, and the middle is being lost. But we don't have, uh, you know, an, uh, uh, politicians who who have much incentive to cater to that middle uh, because of gerrymandering, and frankly, we don't have a news media who wants to talk about that middle because it's messy and complex, and we're getting our messages in 140 character sound bites. So for sure, that's for sure. And and what you're basically saying is that the, the, the problems aren't either one or the other. Uh, it's basically a need to come together and compromise. Uh, but that's yeah, very difficult. And, and to see the other side as being reasonable. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I uh, my wife, I, I'll give credit to her for this because she said it and I think she's right. Um, she said that that the right takes Trump seriously, but not literally. The left takes Trump literally, but not seriously. <laughs> oh no, that's a good way to put it. Right? That's a good way to put it. Way to put it. Well, based on all we've talked about, and we could go on for another two hours about this, and it's been delightful. But you know, what's the bottom line for you, and and uh, what's your hope for our country and our form of government? I have none. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. That's a that's too 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 glib. Uh, I sadly I am very pessimistic. Um, uh, sadly, I know enough about history um, and and, uh, uh, and 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 about American history and about European history, about uh, uh, German history. Particularly, I lived in Germany for a number of years. Um, uh, sadly, I know enough about history to see those parallels much more clearly than, than maybe I wish I did. Um, I mean, I don't want to end on a, on a low note. Um, uh, maybe I shouldn't end on a low note. I think it's possible that we'll uh, get past this sort of rough patch that, that clearly American democracy and global democracy seems to be in right now. Um, but you know that may might require serious attention to serious problems yeah. uh, that aren't the problems that are likely to get a, a lot of attention. I mean, I mean, not to start a a new thread right now when I when I think we're 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 nearing an end of this discussion. But you know, the the discussion you see on both sides is about identity politics or race or gender or this or that. And so for the the, the, for the left, the big boogeyman is, is racism on the right, and they're not wrong, but whatever. Um, and on the, the right, the big boogeyman is critical race theory or you know, uh, transgender people who are gonna, I don't know, use the wrong bathroom or something. Um, and I think this provides both sides with a great excuse to not focus on, on more material things that I think ultimately matter more. Uh, income inequality, yeah. um, education, uh, uh, systemic tinkering, polarization, 
you know, but it's, it's very hard to, it's very easy to say that what we need as a society to get past our problems is to come together and, and, and compromise. I mean, it is what we need, but, but it's very easy to say that. It's harder to say what we need is a redistributive tax structure that's gonna give people, regardless of race or income, uh, the education they need, um, that's gonna give uh, people, regardless of, of race or income, uh, the, 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 the social safety net that they need. Um, and, you know, but that doesn't, that doesn't make for a nice soundbite. Um, and I, you know, I can't agree with you more about the, the thing that keeps me up at night thinking about the history parallels in uh, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy of uh, what went on legally. Uh, but back then, uh, they didn't have the technology that we have today. Uh, so in a sense, what's happening and almost repeating itself, uh, I hope I'm wrong, but it seems like we're seeing this all again, but at this time it's on steroids. That's right. And That's right. so the problems aren't really that different. And even the arguments aren't that different, but the method is different. Yeah. Now, I don't know if the method is itself a problem. It probably is at some level. Again, it's not an either or thing. It's gotta be some of the problem. The question is, is it all the problem? Uh, but, you know, is the problem that we use cell phones to, to communicate our message in 140 character you know, snippets, or is the problem income inequality, which people have been arguing about for a really, really long time. And the difference is that now we argue about it through tweets instead of uh, in, in the cafes and salons of Berlin. Uh, I don't know which is, which is, you know, I'm sure it's not an either or thing. I'm sure both are part of the problem. Yeah, well, this has been absolutely wonderful to have this conversation with you. And and I just was thinking that uh, I'd like to reflect back on hoping that uh, Winston Churchill was right and people, people would really understand what he meant uh, when he said democracy is the worst form of government. It can be frustrating as heck, but then he said, except for all the others that have been tried. And I, I wish they'd take him seriously because the man absolutely knew what he was talking about. So I want to thank you so much. I, pardon? You're preaching to the choir. I know I am, and you are too. And I, I want to thank you so much, Professor Hollander, for being our guest today on It's All About Skills. I want to thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Well, and as for myself, I'm an internationally certified career coach. I specialize in career management, skill development, career crises, and positive intelligence. And you can get in touch with me through my website, charliejetcoaching.com. Or if you're interested in positive intelligence, it's podcastpq.com. So I want to thank all of you for listening today. And we'll see you next time as we discuss the critical skills on It's All About Skills. Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com. 
We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.